Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. This is the programme about Ireland's maritime development, about our relationship with the sea around this island nation and about our maritime culture, history and tradition. Dockers are very much a part of our maritime history. Port operations have changed in modern times and the role of the traditional dock workers of previous years has been changed in the ports of our country, now intensively operated by modern technology. But the dockers will not be forgotten. I have a strong respect for them and the story I'm about to tell you is a good reason for that respect. This is Declan Byrne of the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society. We're in an organisation that's trying to not only preserve the history of Dublin docks, but also to honour uh, certain people that worked in the docks. And we were set up 11 years ago. In that 11 years, the Dock Workers Preservation Society has done impressive work, amassing a resource of thousands of photographs of Dublin Port and the dock labour workforce. This is the story of the Society's attempts to honour three deep-sea dockers, to recognise what it describes as their unique contributions to national, social and economic history. So far, that has been frustrated. We approached um, Dublin City Council and anyone else that we, we uh, thought could help uh, to get some kind of a uh, memento and we, were, we might as well be talking to ourselves. There's enough stories with the three of these people. Uh, if, if, if someone does their work right where well, you could take a tour around Dublin uh, to relate the stories, uh, this, is a, a, this would be a plaque commemorating fantastic heroic acts uh, both for the country and for saving people's lives and so on, you know. That's John Miley Walsh, whose father was a docker and passed on his docker's button to Miley who, from a young age after his father became ill did the hard work of a docker. So, who are the men the society once recognised? Well, there are Patrick Curry, William Deans and the deep-sea docker who the society says started the blacking of munitions arriving by ship in Dublin port to supply the British Army during the War of Independence, Michael Donnelly. Dockers took pride in having a nickname. And his nickname was the Bishop Donnelly. And the reason he was called the Bishop, though, even though he was a Republican Socialist, when he gave a speech, everybody that listened to it said he sounded like a bishop. So at a very young age, he joined the Citizens' Army. He fought in the 1916 War of Independence in the St. Stephen's Green Battalion. And then in May 1920, ship bertered at the North Wall. And then more than likely, it was four or five hatches, all different cargo. But one particular hatch was uh, vehicles for the British Army. So the story goes that the Bishop Donnelly cycled up to Liberty Hall because the dockers were in the Irish Transport and General Workers Union at the time and he couldn't find any officials. So he went back to the ship and he asked his fellow dockers not to handle that cargo. 
and then on the Monday morning uh, the, the ship worked over the weekend and the Monday morning he went back up to Liberty Hall and the officials kind of said to him well you've been blacking them out weekend you might as well continue so the chances are that that ship was berthed there because both the North Wall extension and the North Wall had a rail link into the Point Depot which was uh, a CIE yard that the cargo could be moved in there and then transported anywhere in Ireland. So without any shadow of a doubt, the rail workers in the Point Depot decided to, to back this blacking. But not only that, they, they then decided to, to black it in every train, every transport. So it became a, a nationwide campaign. So in September 2020, Post issued a, a commemorative stamp called Dockers Down Tools, and they gave a, a, published a leaflet at the time explaining it, but they didn't mention Michael the Bishop Donnelly. His son donated 2,000 documents to the Preservation Society, helping it discover that story. And they've suggested a plaque beside the three arena, formerly the point, close to where that industrial action during the War of Independence against the British Army took place. Another docker, Patrick Curry, had to leave the docks when the Second World War started. Trade through the port dropped off sharply, so work was scarce. Patrick Fatsakuri. We won't comment on his nickname. So Patrick Fatsakuri joined the East Surrey Regiment on 30th of September 1940. And he's very unlucky. While fighting in Singapore, he was captured by the Japanese on the 15th of February 1942. And his record showed that it was from 13 Nixon Street, North Wall. And his previous employment was as a stack labourer. I would have known Fatser and uh, he didn't talk too much about his experience. It's described as three years of hell. Now, uh, I would know other stories about him uh, and about when a Japanese ship came into the port and what action he took against them. He was in prisoner war camps and he was also forced to work on the Burma Railway. So many of the prisoners uh, died uh, or were seriously injured while do, being forced to work on it. He had medical records which showed multiple physical injuries, having been beaten by the, the camp officers. So he came back, him returning to the North Wall, and then in a nice... Uh, thing years later because he followed the walk in the port he became a button ducker To remember his name the society has sought without success a plaque to be placed beside the National Conference Centre where the North Wall meets the Liffey The button donated the highest level of docker employment the third of the trio for whom recognition is sought is William Deans of Foley Street. For dockers working coal ships, using their number seven shovels, this was the dirtiest, hardest and most dangerous work. 
particularly with coal boats or heavy cargo ships, and there would have been multiple hatches. So rather than you being a docker, shoveling coal or lifting heavy timber, the ideal job was if you were a winch driver. So in each hatch, there'd be a ship's winch. So the shipping company saved money by not using uh, port cranes, but by using these winches. So on the 12th of November 1947, uh, William Deans was allocated or employed as the winch driver on the first hatch of the Massa Delano. The ship previously coming to Dublin carried grain. The hatch wasn't properly cleaned. Gas started to emerge from down in the hatch and three of the officers on the ship went into the hatch and were immediately uh, kind of gassed and collapsed. So all the the other crew, uh, it was an American ship, all the other crew abandoned ship and all the dockers employed that day abandoned ship with the exception of William Deans. He urinated on his handkerchief and he put the handkerchief around his mouth and he went into the hatch and if you can imagine a really steep ladder he put the first man on his back carried him up and brought him to the key wall so he did that three times for the awaiting ambulance the three men were taken to hospital two of them spent a very short time in hospital and the third a little longer and the family all recall the officer coming down with Christmas goodies for them uh, and they said it was the best Christmas they ever had the next coincidence was that in 1957 at roughly the same part he saw a French sailor fall off a gangway of a ship and, and was drowning so he, he jumped in and saved his life so he was the, one of the first under our independence to get a bravery medal and then he got a bravery award for saving the, the French sailor and then the family moved to Ballybock and the, my day was Ballybock Bridge was now the Luke Kelly Bridge and even though he was quite old he saw a child fall into the Talca and surprise surprise he jumped in and he, he saved uh, the, the child's life as well so it is a bit sad that his bravery isn't recognised uh, and the bravery of the other two uh, and the contributions and, and that that they've made. That's an extraordinary story. It's not something that uh, will ever be forgotten by ordinary people, but it should be, it should be told to the general public. Uh, it's, it warrants... Uh, a, a, a decent recognition I'm very very proud of the fact that um, my father grandfather and great grandfather worked uh, on the docks and if you talk to any any docker whether he be buttonman or non-buttonman they're all very proud of where we come from history is a thing that has to be kept alive for everyone's sake uh, we, uh, we could turn into Americans or Lithuanians or Russians, if the war keeps going, if we don't protect our own history.
and it, it, the only one that will protect us ourselves. A great summary there by Dr. John Miley Walsh of the reason why three dockers should be remembered and that we should remember our maritime traditional history. Sir John Rogerson's key is suggested for a plaque to remember William Deans. Perhaps Dublin City Council could work with Dublin Port, which has done so much, to preserve the history of the docks, to remember the three dockers, whose stories were outlined to me by the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society. Declan Byrne says the society would love to have somewhere to display their collection of photographs and memorabilia, but which, despite multiple promises, nothing has happened. So... Who will help them? Now a roundup of coastal news, here's Antonio Callaghan. It seems that the Department of Defence intends to scrap at least two of the three naval vessels which it decommissioned last year. Three were decommissioned at the same time, Meli Etna and two inshore patrol vessels L.E. Orla and L.E. Kira in what was an unprecedented move, leading to speculation about what would be done with them. The last naval ship auctioned off, L.E. Ashling, was sold for €110,000, but eventually ended up owned by Libyan warlord General Khalifa Haftar, who was reported to have paid €1.3 million Euros to its buyers. The department has advertised on the government e-tenders website for the provision of ship recycling consultancy services to support the recycling of decommissioned naval service vessels, looking for those it appoints to offer at least €130,000. It seems the department wants to avoid another controversy with warlords getting former Irish naval vessels and is looking at demolition. Meanwhile, Cork County Council and Dublin Port have made approaches to acquire the Etna as a possible maritime museum. At the Grand Canal Basin in Dublin Port, another ship is, most likely, headed for scrapping. The former CIE Galway Aran Islands passenger and freight ferry, Neavena, which was withdrawn from the Aran Islands route 37 years ago and has been the subject of preservation campaigns. It has capsized and is regarded as unsafe and needing to be removed. Vandals have done it a lot of damage. In 2015, it was bought for a euro by Sam Field Corbett of Irish Ship and Barge Fabrication, whose company restored the former Cork Harbour liner tender Killarna as a floating restaurant and bar venue in Dublin Port. At one stage, there was a plan, which failed, to move the Neviena back to Galway. Fishing industry organisations are voicing increasing concern about development of offshore wind farms around the Irish coast. Relations between the fishing industry and the developers of wind farms are reported not to be the best at the Seafood Offshore Renewable Energy Working Group set up by Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage Dara O'Brien last summer. This was intended to facilitate discussion on matters arising from the interaction of the seafood and offshore renewable energy industries. The fishing industry says it is not being given enough information about the impact on fishing grounds by wind farms whose proposals are now moving into the planning phase. Inland Fisheries Ireland, the state agency for angling, has advertised tenders for a consultant engineer to prepare a report on options for improvement works at the Anacotti Weir on the lower Mulcair River outside Limerick. 
It is one of the most important river passages for fish in the Shannon estuary area. There will be acoustic monitoring equipment off the coasts of County Waterford and County Wexford for three to four months. These are being deployed by Energia as part of its works for Energia's North Celtic Sea and South Irish Sea offshore wind projects. The Port of Cork Company has signed a contract with Cork-based boat builders Safehaven Marine for a new all-weather pilot vessel to be delivered in March of next year. It will be designed and manufactured in Yall, County Cork by Safehaven Marine. And finally, Craggy Island is booked out for early March. And where is the Father Ted Island? On Inishmore, in the Aran Islands, the location of the annual Ted Fest. It has sold out several months before it will be held. The organisers have advised people not to travel unless they have already reserved accommodation. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. There is deep concern in coastal communities about the impact of offshore wind farms which are now entering the planning phase and this is also evident in the fishing industry. I'm told that relations between the fishing industry and the developers of wind farms do not appear to be the best at the Seafood Offshore Renewable Energy Working Group. That was set up by Minister for Housing, Local Government and Heritage, Dara O'Brien, to facilitate discussion between the seafood and the offshore energy industry. But communication hasn't been good, and I'm told that several proposals for wind farms are being cited on important fishing grounds, leading to more difficulties, it seems. Mark Healy is an engineer who worked in maritime renewable energy before he became a ship's deck officer. For his BSc at the National Maritime College in Ringskiddy, Cork Harbour, his thesis has been the interaction between offshore wind farms and commercial shipping routes, how they might affect each other and the benefits of effective planning. That also impacts, of course, on the fishing and leisure marine industries. And overall, all of this doesn't appear to have been looked at in any great detail, he told me. My background is at the moment um, I'm working as a, a deck officer at sea. Uh, so I, my background at sea uh, is working on cruise ships. I worked with uh, Cunard and as third officer on the Queen Victoria and uh, I've recently gone back to college to do the next maritime qualification to be chief mate. Uh, so I did that last year. And as part of that qualification, uh, which is a Bachelor of Science degree in the National Maritime College, um, you undertake a research thesis. Uh, so that's how this thesis arose. And then prior to that, I suppose, working at sea was a bit of a career change for me. My background is actually in uh, engineering and uh, in renewable energy. So... I'm an engineer by trade and I've worked in wave and tidal energy in in UCC in the past. So I suppose my interests are are kind of merging both of those sectors, the the offshore renewable energy and the maritime and shipping. Uh, And so when I came to this research thesis, uh, I thought I'd do something along the lines that integrated both of those both of those sectors. I looked at shipping routes, commercial shipping routes, because that is where most data is, is from, because all commercial ships have to essentially broadcast their position and their routes continuously. And that data is available uh, on, on various databases that are held by uh, Irish Lights and Irish Coast Guard, etc. So I was able to access that, that data for this study. Um, and that was for commercial ships, so passenger ships, cruise ships, tankers, etc., uh, but the, as you say, the leisure and the fishing sectors uh, are also very significant when it comes to 
I suppose, marine spatial planning, which is which is what all of this is about. It's how to plan for our maritime space. So we have a huge maritime space in Ireland that we're really only starting to develop now in, ter- in terms of looking at how best to use the space and, and share it out equally and, and coordinate that interaction between all of those various different sectors, uh, be it aquaculture, shipping, etc. So this was looking at the commercial side, but the, the fishing and the leisure is also a major sector which needs to be looked at. But it's a bit more difficult because the data isn't as readily available, I suppose, uh, although there are ways of accumulating that, that kind of data just by observation and, and chatting to the various sectors. You did make the point that the original planning requirements or requests rather by developers would be for bigger areas than they're likely to be occupying whenever their projects are completed. So there's a lot to draw from this in terms of the the quality of the planning and the understanding how to plan properly. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is a sector now planning which is really coming to the fore because the European Union uh, had a, a requirement that by 2021, every coastal state had to implement uh, what was called a marine spatial plan. So Ireland has developed uh, a marine spatial plan um, in 2021. It's called the, the National Marine Planning Framework. And we have a whole sector now, and I suppose um, a division within the Department of Environment, uh, Climate and Communications that are looking at this, Uh, and that are developing uh, what's called an offshore renewable energy development plan. Um, And it's the second incarnation of that. And they're looking at how best to use use these resources. Um, And really, it's it's trying to optimise the the space and and look at how how we can use offshore wind, fishing, uh, commercial shipping, how all of those sectors can can, can use the space and get the maximum benefit from it. An Oireachtas committee last year did say in its uh, statement that there's greater consultation needed with all sectors, fishing industry, leisure and others. That seems to be quite necessary, more consultation, more consideration for how the impact of one development will affect another where offshore wind is concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the consultation is key. Uh, Ireland now is, is coming into a phase in the next couple of years where there's going to be a lot of development, particularly you know, obviously in the offshore wind sector. There's a lot of developments which are coming down the track in the next few years. And consultation is key with all of the sectors, uh, be it fishing, leisure, uh, commercial shipping, and the offshore developments uh, and developers themselves. And really, it's only by consultation that, that these projects will be will be successful and the projects themselves know that the planners on the government side know that and so there's a really big effort at the moment uh, with engaging with stakeholders uh, and conducting this consultation effectively so that everybody can benefit and that will be the objective and so that no one particular sector should be should be discommoded um, so and it's, it's key we can see that from developments onshore uh, and issues that happen when consultations aren't successful or they're not done properly as well as from the beginning. So we really have a good chance now in Ireland to learn lessons from other countries that have gone before us. We look at the European, other European nations um, that have a lot of offshore wind developments have already occurred. Uh, and the benefit to Ireland being a bit behind the curve, essentially, is that we can learn from other countries in best practices and how to do these projects properly that brings 
everybody together along the uh, along the path of development. You had a lot of support in putting this study together, Mark, from a lot of agencies. So obviously, the message is listen to each other, consult, discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I got great support with this study. It was supported by Irish Lights, uh, who I worked with for a couple of years uh, on the marine policy side of things. And that's how this project originated, really, um, in Irish Lights. Um, they get a lot of uh, developments coming in and statutory consultations. Um, and so we, we look at individual uh, developments. It's one of a number of agencies that are consulted. Um, and, and, you know, for this particular project, I got support from the UK Hydrographic Office, Irish Lights, as mentioned, Irish Coast Guard, the UK Maritime Coast Guard Agency, uh, and the European Maritime Safety Agency. So they're all the, I suppose, the statutory bodies. But all of the other sectors, um, the fishing organisations, the leisure organisations, uh, and the commercial shipping uh, side as well, which, which sometimes is forgotten about because it's it's kind of seen to be in the background and just getting on with things. But all of these sectors need to be uh, engaged with and uh, essentially discussions had so that these developments uh, can ultimately proceed without too, too much issues once they get beyond the planning stage into, into construction. Mark Healy with an interesting perspective on onshore wind farms, shipping, fishing and marine leisure. And I do wonder, why is it that the Department of Housing with a lot of land-based problems to deal with, it has to be said, was assigned the role of marine protected areas and other aspects of planning offshore wind farms, and not the Marine Department. Now to the angling world with Miles Kelly from Fisheries Ireland and the salmon season is a principal topic. Hello Tom, it's good to be back in Maritime Ireland sharing Ireland's angling news with you. So salmon anglers are back on the rivers again, all hoping to be the one to catch the first fish of the season. This year we have 81 rivers that are available for salmon and sea trout fishing. Now that's the same as last year, but some of the rivers have changed. So check fishinginireland.info for details. So 48 of these rivers will be open fully and the remaining 33 are catch and release only. And a quick reminder to anglers on the catch and release rivers, all salmon and any sea trout over 40 centimetres must be released. Anglers are not allowed to use worms and fishing is only allowed with single or double barbless hooks. No barbs, no trebles. I have a quick word on landing nets. Anyone fishing catch and release should have a landing net big enough for the fish they're expecting to catch. And the handle should be long enough to deal with the distance from the bank to the water. There's no point bringing a short handled net to a river where the banks are a couple of feet high. The old nylon knotted nets cause a lot of damage to fish. They strip scales, remove the protective slime layer and generally cause cuts and abrasions that lead to infection. An infection, well, there's a good chance it'll either kill the fish or make it much easier for some other predator to catch and eat this fish that you've taken trouble to release. Now, if the goal is to catch a fish and safely release it, having a net that acts like a cheese grater is obviously a problem. So we encourage all anglers to use a landing net, either one with soft knotless mesh or the newer rubber meshes. You can buy replacement bags for nearly all sizes and shapes of landing nets. Now is as good a time as any to get in touch with your local tackle shop and see what they have in stock or can order in for you. 
Anyway, back to salmon. The general improvements in stocks from last year have been maintained this year, but you know, there's still a lot left to do and there's more than IFI needed to be committed to salmon recovery for stocks to continue to improve. It needs a collective effort from all sectors and segments of the community and a lot of persistence is required to see the changes that are needed. Salmon stocks are completely dependent on departments and agencies and local authorities and on farmers, industry and developers all facing up to the environmental, climate and biodiversity impacts that they make. Now that's all of us, Tom. So on that note, I wish all anglers listening in, coarse pike, saltwater, salmon and trout, a great season in 2023. I hope all of your catch of a lifetimes outnumber your ones that got away. Oh yeah, by the way, we have daily angling reports on fishinginireland.info. Well worth a look on those days that you can't get to the water. That's all from me, Tom. Safe fishing to all and don't forget, CPR saves fish. Miles Kelly reporting from Fisheries Ireland. And that concludes the February edition of Maritime Ireland, sound supervision by Justin Marr. The programme email address is tomxsweedymaritimeireland at gmail.com. That's tomxsweedymaritimeireland at gmail.com. Phone and text number 0872-555-197. Thank you for listening and for being part of the Maritime community. Until next month, the Maritime Ireland weekly newsletter is on Facebook and LinkedIn. And for daily maritime news, please follow me on Twitter. From me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing.